You can turn to Acts chapter 10. So we've been coming through the book of Acts together, and in God's plan, we, we land in Acts 10 this morning. Acts 10. Father, thank you for your word and allowing us to open it up this morning. God, you're so merciful that you would be willing to speak to men. When we consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, what is man that you're mindful of? What mercy, God, that you would speak to us through your word. God, you're so merciful, you're so good to us, and we praise you for that. And so, Lord, please, as we read these scriptures given by your hand, as your word is proclaimed, God, please, Lord, speak to us. Speak to your church. Give us that blessing of hearing from you. We want to be moved, God, to understanding and obedience and worship. God, I pray that this morning you would call some of us to new areas of obedience. You would remind all of us, Lord, of the truth of your word. God, make us a people submitted to you. We are, Lord. We, we are submitted to you. But Lord, we want, to be, we want to be under your authority even more so. Help us, Lord, in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in Acts chapter 10, and we're going to do an overview of Acts chapter 10 this morning. Uh, I want you to remember where we've already been in the book of Acts, uh, kind of remember where we, where, where we are in this, uh, this whole scheme of church history, uh, this redemptive history, where are we at right now in the book of Acts? If you remember Acts 1-8, Jesus told us what was going to happen. He said that, uh, that his people were going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, and then all Judea and Samaria, that's all throughout Israel, and then he said to the ends of the earth. And so the place where we've landed in Acts 9.31 is that the church was being built up in Judea and Galilee and Samaria. That's the whole, all three regions of Israel. So the church has been planted and being built up all throughout Israel. So what's next? And what's next is for the gospel to explode out into the ends of the earth the Gentiles, to all the nations. And that's kind of, as we approach Acts chapter 10, that's where we're at in the book of Acts this morning. Now Acts chapter 10 verse 1, really all the way to chapter 11 verse 18 could be taken as a unit. And we see in that unit of scripture that Peter takes the gospel and there's this emphasis on the Gentiles. He's taking the gospel in Acts 10 1 to Chapter 11, verse 18, there's this, this, this idea of the gospel going to the Gentiles. We see in Acts 10 how it actually happens, how the Gentiles hear the gospel and are converted and saved, brought into the church. And then we get into Acts 11, we're going to see Peter go report that situation to the church at Jerusalem. And the way it's all going to cap off in 11:18 is this. When they heard these things... They fell silent and they glorified God saying, then the Gentiles, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. God granted to the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. 
And so in Acts chapter 10, we're going to see, just by way of summary, we're going to see God preparing a man named Cornelius, who's a Gentile. And then we're going to see at the, at the same time, God preparing Peter to take the gospel to these Gentiles. And then we're going to see Peter and Cornelius come together along with a whole slew of other Gentiles. And they're going to get saved and they're going to be baptized. They're going to come into the church. So we're going to see in Acts chapter 10. Now, a couple things before we read this, before we dig into this section by section, I, there's just a couple things that, that are kind of like groundwork. There's a couple things that we need to know leading into Acts chapter 10. So a couple things that you need to know leading into in Acts chapter 10. Number one, you need to view you need to view what's happening here as something that's unique. Okay? You, need to, you need to view this as, an, as an, uh, a new era or an epoch-shifting moment is about to go down as we read Acts chapter 10. This is a pivotal moment in church history, a pivotal moment in redemptive church history. So I want you to understand that. So this, this Jesus movement is about to break out of Israel. This is how... How big of a deal Acts 10 is. It's about to break out of Israel and go out to all the nations. This is like the Gentile Pentecost. Remember in Acts 2, we talked about Pentecost and what happened there is the, as the Holy Spirit was poured out. Do you remember that? Remember how unique that was? That that's, that's not everybody's experience. Everyone that gets saved, they don't have tongues of fire sitting on their head. They don't begin to speak in other languages. They don't hear the sound like a rushing mighty wind. So you got this unique era-shifting moment in Acts 2 at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out. Well, you see the same thing here in Acts 10. This is like Pentecost for the Gentiles. And there's even similarities that you see between what happens to the Gentiles here in Acts 10 and what happens over there in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit is first poured out. And some of those similarities, uh, the way in Acts 10 we're going to see the Holy Spirit talked about is very similar in Acts 10, it's going to talk about the gift of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the Gentiles. The gift of the Holy Spirit being poured out. Very similar language we see in Acts chapter 2, 2.38, where it says the gift of the Holy Spirit would be poured out on them. Also, a similarity between Acts 10 and Acts 2, we see the miracle of speaking in tongues in both places. We see the miracle of speaking in tongues in both places in Acts 10 and Acts 2. And then probably the clearest thing here is just what the apostles say. L listen to what the apostles say about what's happening to the Gentiles in Acts 10. And I want you to understand how comparable this is to the Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Look at verse, look first at verse 47. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit? Listen to it. Just as we have. They've received the Holy Spirit, these Gentiles, just as we have. This is like Gentile Pentecost in a sense. Look at chapter 11, verse 15. So, as I said in chapter 11, uh, Peter goes back to the church of Jerusalem, and he describes to them what happened with the Gentiles. And look at verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. Did you catch that? The Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. This is a pivotal moment. This is a, an epoch-shifting moment, just like Acts chapter 2 was. Look at verse 17. Chapter 11, verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them, Gentiles, as He gave to us, Jews, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So I want you to see that, that what we're seeing in Acts 10 is like a Gentile Pentecost. This is an epoch-shifting moment, a new era, a pivotal moment in church history. It's the way that we should view, it's the way that we should view Acts chapter 10. There's a, a main promise, if you remember, again, just to get you to see how pivotal this moment is. There's a main promise that's given in, in the first book of the Bible. First book of the Bible is Genesis, and the main promise that kind of connects all of Genesis together is that through Abraham is coming a seed that's going to bless all nations. And here we're at the beginning of that. 
This is a huge moment in Acts 10 where the gospel is about to break out of Israel into all nations, the beginning of the fulfillment of the main promise in the first book of the Bible. This is a big deal in Acts chapter 10. Up until this point in history, there's been a massive divide between Jew and Gentile. Okay, And even, even by design of God, by God's design, at this point in history, there's been a massive divide between Jew and Gentile. Now, you can see this in Acts chapter 10. If you look at verse 28, look at verse 28, what Peter says. And he, Peter, said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. And he goes on to be corrected in that. But did you understand that? Do you see this divide between Jew and Gentile? And like I said, even by the design of God, in a lot of ways, you've got the, the ceremonial laws in the, in the Old Testament that were designed to separate the people of Israel out from the nations. So by the design of God, and even that law, that ceremonial law, is going to be put away, it's going to be done away with in Acts chapter 10. This is a big moment. This is a huge moment. A pivotal moment in Acts chapter 10. In fact, you don't have to flip there, but listen to this in Ephesians chapter 2, and I want you to think about how this connects. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Listen to this about the Gentiles. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, those people that are receiving the gospel in Acts chapter 10, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Listen to, their, listen to the way they were. Without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, and so making peace. And what we see in Acts chapter 10 is the outworking of that, the beginnings of that gospel bursting out to all nations and making one man from the two. No longer Jew and Gentile, but one people of God. So up until this point, a massive divide between Jew and Gentile, and God is about to deal with that. He's about to change that. This is a pivotal moment. This is an epoch-shifting moment that we get to read about in Acts chapter 10. So I want you to understand that as we get ready to read it in just a moment, okay? I want you to understand that. Now, second thing I want you to understand as we get ready to read this is I want you to understand what uh, just a more clear definition of Gentile or nations. I want you to understand this idea of Gentile or nations. We don't typically use the word Gentile in our vocabulary a lot. And typically when you think of the nations, you think of, uh, most of us think of the uh, 195 countries that are on your world map maybe on a wall in your house or something. We think of those 195 you know, lines on your map, those, those countries that are there when you think of nations. So let's, th that's not what it's talking about. So let's, let's try to define for just a moment Gentiles, which are talked about in Acts 10, nations, which are talked about in Acts chapter 10. If you look at verse 45, Acts 10, 45. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, so that's the Jews, remember Jew and Gentile, the circumcised, the Jews, the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So here's one thing we see here, is that Gentiles are non-Jews, they're uh, people that are not Jews. You got Jews and you got Gentiles, okay, that's clear from Right here in chapter 10, verse 45. But here's what I want you to see. There's more than two groups in the world. It's not just two groups. you got Jews and you got Gentiles. It's more than two groups 
in the world. Gentile in verse 45, okay, and also in chapter 11, verse 18, when it said Gentile, that is the Greek word ethnos. The Greek word ethnos. Now, does that sound like any word that, that we have in English that you can think of? Ethnos. Sound like ethnicity or ethnic people? Ethnos. So the same Greek word that's here translated, uh, ethnos, that is translated as Gentile in Acts 10 and Acts 11, in Luke 24, 47, that same word, ethnos, is translated as nations. In Luke 24, 47, it says repentance and remission of sins should be preached among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. All nations. So we're not just talking about Jew and Gentile. When we talk about Gentile or the ethnos, we're talking about the nations. It's not just one group, but many nations. Many nations. Now, same word in Acts 10. Again, look at Acts 10, verse 34 and 35. We're going to see the word nation. Same Greek word, ethnos. Look at it. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every ethnos, in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. So now we're talking about, again, not just two groups, Jew and Gentile, but the Gentiles or the nations. This verse says every nation, all the nations, there's many nations across the globe. That's what we mean when we think of Gentiles or nations. Now, here's what I want you to see, though, as we continue that definition. Ethnos is more specific than the 195 uh, territories that are on your world map, the things that we call countries. It's more specific than that when you hear this word nations or, or ethnos, okay? Now, we can begin to understand that by seeing where it's all going. So, so we know that the gospel is going out to all the ethnos, to all the nations, to all the Gentiles, we know that's going to happen. Well, well, what do we mean by that? And you can look at the very end. How is it all going to, how's it all going to play out in the end? And look at Revelation chapter 5, or you can just listen here. Revelation 5 verse 9. Listen, listen to the more specific than just countries is what we mean when we say nations. Listen to it. This is a glimpse into heaven. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, so you, Jesus, were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from where? From every tribe and language and people and nation. From every tribe and people and language and nation. So now we have these categories more specific than just the geopolitical lines on your map. We're talking about, what if you just took the languages there? So people from every tribe and, and people and language and nation. The lang what if you just took the languages there? Think about that. Every language on the planet represented in heaven. Just that little fact takes you from 195 countries to over 7,000 languages on the planet. Over 7,000 languages on the planet. So you get more specific here. And I believe you can even get more specific than that because this makes sense, right? That for those nations, for those peoples, those ethnos to, to enter into the kingdom of God, to enter into heaven, what must they hear? The gospel of Jesus Christ, it must be communicated to them in a way that they can understand the gospel like Cornelius does here and so be saved. So it makes sense that all languages would be represented in heaven as they hear the gospel in their own language and are saved. This also makes sense if you look back to where the nations all began, right? Where this whole nations thing come from. Genesis chapter 11 Verse 1 says the whole earth was one language, one language, one people. Everything goes down with the Tower of Babel, and they seek to make a name for themselves at the Tower of Babel, and God spreads them out over all across the planet and confuses their languages. It's where it all begins. So what's going to have to happen to redeem people from each one of these ethnos? They're going to have to hear the glorious gospel. So at the very least, we can say, 
That when we hear ethnos or Gentiles or nations, that we should be thinking about a distinct groups of people. They, they've been termed as people groups, ethnic groups of people. And if you just go off languages, you can at least get to 7,000 or so. Now, there's other numbers out there, so... You know, Joshua Project, Operation World, these are just our best guesses at understanding how to define what are the nations that we're to go after. It's our best guess at understanding it, but they're helpful. You know, I think one of them says there's 12,000 people groups or ethnos on the planet. I think another one says there's 16,000 because they have a little bit different factors they're working with there. 16,000 people groups or nations or ethnos on the planet. For a more detailed study of that, I would commend something to you. Uh, John Piper wrote a book called Let the Nations Be Glad. And chapter 5 gets into some detail about what are people groups, what are nations, and, and how should we be minded toward the people groups of the earth. Okay? So I want you to understand, Gentiles, nations. Now, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Let me give you two quick reasons why it matters, and we'll finally jump in Acts 10. Two reasons why it matters. One, it affects the way you engage in the mission of God. Do you understand that? That when you understand nations, you understand, listen to Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the ethnos, of all the nations, of all the people groups. What is that verse telling us to do? Is it saying just make as many disciples as you can? Is that the mission? Just make as many disciples as you possibly can. Is that what it's saying? Now, now here, no, it's not saying that. Hear me out on that. I want you to make as many disciples as you possibly can. I don't want to restrict you at all in your disciple making. But if I'm understanding Matthew 28, 19, our mindset is not just as many as I can wherever I am, but the mindset is this all nations make disciples of all the nations, all the people groups, the thousands that are on the planet, many of them unreached with the gospel, make disciples of them. It helps me understand the mission. Is the mission just get the gospel into every territory? All 195 countries and territories that are on the planet. Is that the mission? No, it's more specific than that. Get it to the nations. Get it to the people groups. And so it helps us in the mission because we begin to be people group thinking people. Ethnic group thinking people. And I want to ask you that really quick. Do you think like that? There are people that don't think like that. Never think of unreached people groups. Never think about the world and global evangelism and, and the global mission of God. There are people that never think about that. It's just them and their town living out, trying to live out their Christian life. But then there's people that it doesn't mean everybody has to go. Not everybody goes as missionaries to those places. But there are people, even people that stay here, that burn with a desire to see the gospel go to unreached places on the planet. What about you? Where are you at with that? Are you a people group thinking person? A global evangelism thinking person? Because I want us to be like that. I want every member of this church to be thinking just like that. So that's one reason why this matters. The second reason it matters quickly is it helps us understand, and this is why I'm telling you all this, if you understand nations, Gentiles, the definition there, then it helps you understand what's getting kicked off in Acts 10. So we get to Acts 9.31, and the gospel is in Israel, spread throughout Israel, and it's about to be kicked out to the nations. Well, when you understand Gentile and nations, it, help you, it helps you understand what we're about to read in the pivotal, the pivotal moment that's here in Acts chapter 10. So let's look at our passage now. Hopefully that groundwork will help you. Let's look at our passage. Acts chapter 10. We're going to take Acts 10 in three sections as an overview. First section is verse 1 through 8. And what you're going to see here is God dealing with Cornelius. God dealing with Cornelius. Let's read it. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, 
a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius! And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he, that's Cornelius, called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them, he sent them to Joppa. All right. So who is this Cornelius? Who is this man? It says here, he's a centurion of the Italian cohort. Now tell me, that's not a cool title. The cohort there would have been about a thousand soldiers. Centurion would have been over about a hundred, so he's kind of like an, an army captain here. He's a centurion of the Italian cohort. It says also here, he's a devout man. You see that? In Acts 10, he's a devout man, which it goes on to explain he's religiously devout. He's a God-fearer. He's one that prays actually to the right God, to the God of the Jews. He, he's, he's one that uh, gives alms. It'll go on to say in Acts 10 that he's one that was very highly respected among the Jewish nation. They respected this man as a God-fearer, as a fearer of the one true God. He was not a Jew, which brings us to the most important distinction about Cornelius. This man was a Gentile. This man was not a Jew. This man, although he, he, he had sympathies for the God of the Jews, he was not a Jew himself. This man was a Gentile. Was Cornelius saved? Was Cornelius saved? Now, some people would say, yes, Cornelius is saved because didn't you hear what it said? He's a God-fearer. He prays to the right God, and he gives. He gives alms. He gives to people. He's very generous. Yes, of course he's saved. But how many of you know that you can do all those things and still go to hell forever? You can pray to the right God, that you can be a God-fearer in a sense, and yet still your righteousnesses are like filthy rags in his sight. We're gonna, I'm going to show you a verse in a minute. This man is not saved. Now, some people would also try to... Um, they would twist chapter 10, verse 34 and 35 to mean something that it doesn't mean. And they would say, yeah, Cornelius is saved, but they're really just twisting this verse. Look at it. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And they say, see? acceptable means he's saved but i'm going to show you a verse in just a moment it's really clear this man is not saved so acceptable must mean something else we'll talk about it more in a moment but it's obvious that it means that god is not withholding his salvation from all nations from every nation it's the idea of this verse so let me show you the verse that makes it clear that he is not saved look at chapter 11 verse 13 Again, as Peter is retelling the story, chapter 11, verse 13 tells us plainly, and he told us how he had seen an angel. So Peter says, Cornelius told us he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you, listen, a message by which you will be saved. He's going to tell you a message a gospel by which you will be saved. This man is not saved yet. He hasn't heard the message. You can't be saved until you hear the gospel of Christ. How are they calling him in whom they not believed? How will they believe in the one that they've not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? You, you can't be saved unless you've heard the message. Cornelius is not a saved man. He's a Gentile. And he's unsaved, but the gospel 
is coming his way, and that's what God's working out. Because look at what happens to Cornelius here. An angel shows up, scares him half to death, it says. It says he's terrified at the sight of this angel. And the angel tells him, hey, I'm here on behalf of God, and I want you to send to Joppa and go get Peter and tell him to come here. He's going to tell you a message by which you will be saved. And so Cornelius obeys. Cornelius sends two servants and one soldier, so three men. He sends two servants and one soldier, and he sends them to Joppa, a 30-mile journey, 30-mile journey to go get Peter and bring him back. Which brings us to our second section here, verse 9 through 23. And what we're going to see is they're, they're headed to meet Peter, but God's got to prepare Peter. So God's about to prepare Peter. Look at verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, obviously about the vision, as he was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you are looking for. For what is the reason, what is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. So he invited them in to be his guests. Now I want you to notice something beautiful here. These two stories collide. These two stories kind of collide and actually run parallel with one another as we see what God's doing with Cornelius and what God is doing with Peter. And these two things are connecting and they're about to run parallel for this massive event that's going to happen where the Gentiles receive the gospel. So you got three Gentiles are on the journey to see Peter. And Peter, it's about lunchtime. It says here, he's hungry. He goes up on the rooftop. He begins to pray. So he's praying, he's calling out to God, Peter is hungry, and Peter is praying, and suddenly he sees a vision, he sees a vision from God, he enters into a trance, as it says here. And So in this vision, let me just explain the vision quickly, the heavens are open, the, a sheet, a great sheet is lit down by four corners, and in that sheet are all kind of animals and reptiles and birds, a bunch of stuff that's unclean for a Jew to eat. And I want the Jews I did. That's in Leviticus 11 and a few other places that these, these animals in this sheet are unclean to eat. And yet God says, Peter, rise up and eat. To which Peter says, Lord, my lips have never touched anything unclean. I shouldn't do that, Lord. And God says, what I have made clean, you do not call unclean. You don't call uncommon. And so what's this vision all about? This vision happens three times. It's repetitive. Imagine that happening and then same thing again. Did, did Peter repeat the same thing? Lord, I, I, nothing's ever touched my lips. Did he argue three times? 
What's, what's have, think about the importance of this vision. Now, what's it all about? Now, on the surface level, we can see some things that we know, right? We, we see some of the symbolism there, the four corners of the sheet throughout the Bible. Uh, we hear this phrase, the four corners of the earth. So we got this idea, this global picture that's all over the earth, and you've got all kind of animals that are considered unclean in this sheet, just like the Gentiles that are coming are considered unclean. So this is about a global mission. This vision is God helping Peter with this global mission that's about to happen. So we see that really clearly just on the surface here. And we know from verse 28, if you glance at it, verse 28, And Peter said to them, that's the Gentiles, he said, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit one of another nation, but, here's what God was showing him in the vision, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So this vision, even in its just superficial symbolism, is about the global mission of God to all nations, to all the Gentiles. That's the idea. But there's something here that I don't want you to miss because it's a really, listen to me, it's a really big deal in church history. It's a really big deal in redemptive history. So I don't want you to, to miss what's happening here. God is doing away with the dietary laws of the Old Testament. The food laws, the dietary laws. You can find them in Leviticus 11. And in a broader way, he's doing away with the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. Okay? That's a big deal, right? God has said something in Leviticus 11, and right here he's looking at Peter, and he's saying, Peter, you rise up and eat this stuff. Don't call unclean what I've made clean. God's doing away with the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Now, obviously Peter's still holding on to them. He's still holding on to these dietary laws. He says, Lord, I, I can't eat that, to which God says, you don't, don't, don't disagree with me, Right? Well, disagree with me. Now, why does God do away? I want you to think with me for a minute. This is important to see this. This is a pivotal moment. Why does God do away with the ceremonial laws that we find in our Old Testament? Is it so that Peter could finally eat bacon? And I hope you say no, although I saw a few head shaking yes. No, that's not why. It's not so that he could eat this new diet or whatever that he wanted to eat. That's not the point. So why does God do away with these dietary laws? Now, to understand this, you need to understand some things about the purposes of the law. Now, when I'm talking about the law, I'm talking about those commands, testimonies, statutes that God uh, gave to the people of Israel from Mount Sinai. So, so the people of Israel are in Egypt. They're delivered out of Egypt. They're the people of God. They go to Mount Sinai, and they get the law. It's repeated in Deuteronomy. We read about the law in Leviticus and, and, and uh, Numbers, and, and then it's repeated in Deuteronomy as well, and also in Exodus, excuse me, also in Exodus. So we read about the law in the first five books of the Bible, and you need to understand some things about the purpose of the law. Now, there's, there's multiple purposes of the law in God's Word. So let me give you some examples. Number one, the law from the Word of God from coming down from Mount Sinai is given to put on display the character of God, right? It's one of the purposes of the law, to put the character of God on display. When you read things in the law like, you shall not have any other idols before me, it means I am supreme. I'm to be worshipped above all else. The only one worthy of praise. There's none like me. Is what God screams in that command. Okay, so it's to put his, his character on display. The law is about taking care of the poor. It shows you God's character, God's heart towards the poor, towards the needy. Okay? Right, another purpose of the law would be to put on display human sinfulness. The law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. It puts on display human sinfulness. See, we don't think we're that bad. In our sin of pride, we think that our other sins don't even exist. And so, and so we need to be made aware of our sin. And so the law plays a role. One of its purposes is to put on display the sinfulness of man. The law says, don't lie. And everybody in the room says, I am in trouble then. I have lied countless times. 
The law says, do not covet. And everybody in the room says, we are in trouble then. We have been a covetous people. We've been an idolatrous people. And so the law shows you your sin so that you realize, I need a Savior. I can't get myself out of this. I need Christ to come. It's a tutor to bring you to Christ. So, so these are purposes of the law. But what about the ceremonial law? What about these food laws, these dietary laws? Surely there's nothing just in and of itself, there's nothing immoral about eating pork, right? So what's, what's going on? What's up with these ceremonial laws or these, these kind of laws in the Old Testament? These laws were meant to separate Israel. I want you to hear me out here. You need to understand this. These laws were meant to separate out Israel from the nations. These dietary laws were meant to separate, to mark off Israel from the nations, from the Gentiles, from the world around them. Now you think about how effective that is. I mean, you just take one little thing. You, say, you tell me you don't drink coffee. I don't even know how to, how to, meet, I don't know how to have a meeting with you. Well, you don't drink coffee, right? And you imagine, and I'm obviously joking, but if you don't drink coffee, we can meet this week, so... I'm joking about that. But, but you get what I'm saying is that these dietary laws, these restrictions on what they can eat and what they can't eat would play a role in separating them out as a people from all the nations around them. And every place that the Jews went had groups of people. This was noticed, that these people are weird. These people are different. They are different than us. They are separate from us. So these dietary laws were meant to effectively separate out the people of Israel from the nation. And so, the food laws, okay, they're about marking off the people of Israel, keeping them separate. And so then, if God, think about this, if God is doing away with the food laws, the dietary laws, the ceremonial laws, if He's doing away with them, what does that mean? It means that God is no longer interested in separating out ethnic Israel from the nations. You understand that? That there was a time where God was interested in separating out this people, ethnic Israel, from the world, from the nations. Now he's not interested in doing that. And, and then you've got to say, why? why? Why is God no longer interested in separating out, separating out ethnic Israel from the nations? Because their purpose was fulfilled. You see, through these people, the promise all through the Old Testament... From before they were a nation with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to even when they were a nation with David and Solomon and all the prophets, the, the promise was constantly this, that there's coming a Messiah through you people. That you exist because Christ is coming through ethnic Israel. The Savior will be born in Bethlehem. He'll reign as king. He'll be He'll be the Messiah for the Jewish people. And so that is fulfilled. There's no need now to separate out ethnic Israel from the nations. But now the true Israel will be a people of God from all the nations. So these ceremonial laws, these food laws have fulfilled their purpose. So God tells Peter, Peter, rise and eat. And the point's not, you get to eat this, Peter. The point is, go to the Gentiles. There's no more separation here. Go to them with a the glorious gospel. One people. Jew and Gentile for the glory of God. Now, does Peter come to understand this? Yes. He understands this. Look at, look at verse 17. While Peter was inwardly perplexed, as to what the vision that he had seen meant, means, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, so there it is, right? So, so surely that's got to get him thinking. He's thinking, what does this vision mean? And all of a sudden, the Gentiles show up. Look down a little bit. Look at verse, verse 19. While Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. You think he's trying to help him make the connection here? This is what this vision, this is what this vision is all about. Look at verse 28 again. He said to them, this is Peter talking to Cornelius and the Gentiles, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation, but because of that vision, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. 
You can read verse 34 and 35, and he says, Listen, God has shown me that he does not walk in partiality, but in every nation. He got it. Peter got the point. He understood what was going on here. I want to read this to you again. Ephesians chapter 2. In light of that, let's read this one more time. In light of what we're talking about, listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 again. I'm going to read down to a few verses. Listen. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, let's hear it again, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the state of these Gentiles. But listen, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace who has made us both one is what God is teaching Peter in this vision. God has made both one. And listen to this. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He broke down what divided them. Keep reading. He broke down what divided them by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. I hope you saw that. But this is what God, we see what's in, in this, this beautiful moment in Ephesians 2. We see the beginnings of it and the announcement of it in Acts chapter 10. Let's go to the last section, Acts 10, verse 24 through 48. We're going to see Peter meets Cornelius and his family and friends, and the gospel is going to make it to the Gentiles. Look at verse 23. Acts 23. Second part of verse 23. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So you got Peter and some other Jews from Joppa that are going with him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, Why you sent for me? Cornelius, why did you send for me? And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer's been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. There they are, ready to hear. We get the message of Peter. Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and he said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism of John that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day, made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. 
And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Message of Peter. What's the response? While Peter was still saying these things, hold up Gentiles, let him finish. But no, while he's still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Alright, so this overview. What does Peter encounter when he, when he gets to Cornelius' house? What does Peter encounter when he gets to Cornelius' house? He sees a bunch of people. It says that Cornelius had gathered together his family and his close friends. I mean, and it says many people gathered up there. That's beautiful. God, Peter shows up to the Gentiles' house, and they're all just sitting there going, we're ready to hear the message that God said would save us. That's a beautiful moment of them ready to hear the truth. God has prepared their hearts. Cornelius bows down, bow, bows down and worships Peter. He's misguided. Peter says, stand up. I'm just a man. What are you doing? Peter says, Cornelius, why'd you send me here? Why, why'd you send for me? And Cornelius tells him the story. He says, we're here, ready to hear. We're ready to hear what you have to say. Now, what is the message? So that's what he encounters when he gets there. But what is the message that Peter preaches? What is the message that kicks the door open for Gentiles like me and you to be saved in every nation, tribe, and tongue on the planet? What's the message? And it's beautiful. I would encourage you on your own to take verses 34 through, where does it go? Verse 43. And just take time to take each bullet point of that message of the gospel and what he says and the power of that glorious message that saves souls. Let me give you a very quick version. Quick version. It says in verse 36 that he preached the good news about Jesus. So we, we need to hear a message from you by which our souls will be saved. And what does he tell them? Let me tell you good news about Jesus. The God-man that came to rescue, that came to save. Let me tell you about him. He says Jesus in verse 36 also is Lord of all. He preaches Jesus as the Lord over all the earth. All people groups on the planet. He is Lord of everyone. All nations, tribes, and tongues. What else does he say? He preaches the life of Jesus. And them as eyewitness testimonies to the life of Jesus. We see in verse 37 through 39. Where he's saying, I, I can testify as an eyewitness of all the things that Jesus did when he healed these people and he raised the dead. And he walked in perfection, sinless perfection. Let me tell you about this man. He preaches the death of Jesus. We see it in verse 39. That this Savior that came, the way he saved, is he died. He was crucified. He's your substitute that died in your place like the lamb that was slaughtered so that you don't have to be. He preached the resurrection of Jesus in verse 40 through 41. He says that this one that died also rose, proving that he is the God he claimed to be. He preaches that they are the eyewitnesses to this resur resurrection. They, they, he even says, listen, we ate and drank with him. We had a meal with him after he was dead and buried in the tomb. I'm not lying to you. He is alive. It's the message of the gospel that they preached. They preached Jesus as the final judge in verse 42. The final judge that will judge the living and the dead. And Jesus will do that. He is going to judge the living and the dead. All judgments delivered into his hands. And finally... He preached the proper response in verse 43. That all those who believe in Him. And this is beautiful. Imagine the sweetness in their ears. All those who believe in Him have forgiveness of their sins. 
If you just, you don't have to become a Jew. If you try to just, well, if I just, if I just be a God-fearer that prays to the God of Jews and gives generously, then I'll be saved, right? He says, no, you go to hell doing that. If you don't put your faith in Christ. And so he preaches this message. And then how do the Gentiles respond? While Peter's still preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on them. The Jews are amazed. The Spirit's been poured out on the Gentiles. This is amazing. And then they baptize them into the church. So here's the door kicked open. Out, the gospel's going outside of Israel into all nations. And I want you to think about how beautiful it is. A beautiful thing that we get to read right here. <laughs> the floodgates open. You know, you needed the floodgates to be open to the Gentiles so that you could be saved. It's how beautiful is this that we get to read where the floodgates are open. In the last 2,000 years, those ethnos I was talking about a moment ago, those thousands of people group across the planet, one after another have been coming to Christ, coming to Christ, coming to Christ again and again. There's still work to be done, but this is beautiful. The floodgates have been opened for the Gentiles. And in the end, it's going to be a people singing to his name from every, it says Revelation 5, 9, right? From every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people, and language. That's going to be a beautiful moment. Now we, <clears throat> we ought to respond to this. Amen? We need to respond to these things. Um, in fact, we always need to respond to it. It's a dangerous thing if you don't respond to the word. And I do fear, I pray, God, don't let us be a people that grow numb to just hear this stuff and make no response. Don't let us be a people like that, that make no response. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Do you see how dangerous it is, dangerous it is to hear these things and have no plan to make any kind of response to them? Now, how do you respond to Acts 10? How do you respond to the door being kicked open, the all-nations door being kicked open? How do you respond to that? You walk through it. You walk through the door, right? It's how we respond to this. Now, I believe that God has called us. We're talking about this all-nations door being kicked open, and, and last 2,000 years, people group after people group after people group, ethnos after ethnos coming to Christ, and there's still unreached ones that we must get to. When you think about, when you, when you think about that, when that begins to enter into your mind, listen to me, all of us need to have, here's, here's something we all should have, the same passion about that. Now, it doesn't mean we have the same actions, God's given different gifts in his body, different roles that we play, but the same passion, the same burden. Do you carry the passion, the all-nations passion? Do you, have, do you carry that burden given to you by God for these all, this all-people group's bride of Christ? Is that vision into heaven of all peoples worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, is that beautiful to you? And is it beautiful the thought that you could stand there in that day and know that you played a role in taking it to those unreached peoples? I love seeing somebody that doesn't necessarily intend on being a missionary, and yet they are filled to the brim with passion about the all-nations bride of Christ. I love seeing that. And at Grace Community Church, I want every one of us to, I want you to ask yourself that. Is the proper burden there? I mean, that godly, God-given burden, is it there for you? Let me give a little bit of homework. Uh, write these down if you can. Just some questions I want you to go before God in a secret place. I want you to ask. I want you to respond. and At least this be at least one way that you respond. Four questions I want you to take to God. And I, and I seriously, I want, you, I want to ask you to do this. One... Get alone in a secret place with an open Bible and ask God, Lord, would you have me to go to unreached people groups? 
Now, if you won't even ask him that, something's not right. Lord, you want me to go to unreached people groups, people that don't have it yet? Now, I realize that there's ways that you can go after some kind of some kind of guilt-driven, you know, people are lost and dying out there and people don't care. You can give kind of this guilt-driven uh, push towards the mission. That's not what we're talking about, right? I hope nobody here is thinking along those lines. What I'm talking about is going to God in prayer and say, God, you are Lord of all. Should I go and tell them that? God, you show no partiality, but in every nation you have a people for your name. Should I go? Lord, you are the God that, that raises up Corneliuses and prepares them to hear the gospel and raises up Peters. Do you want me to go, Lord? Not guilt-driven. I'm talking about this is the God that saves souls from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Does he want you to go? Go to him with that question. Second question. Ask God this, God, would you have me take the job that I do here and go do that job somewhere else among unreached people groups? God, I have a job here, and I want to use it for your glory. Would it be, Lord, that you would get me to take my job here and go unreached people groups and do my job over there? I would love to see more of that. Now, I don't mean some detached from the church, detached from planning. I don't mean that. I don't mean just go over there as a lone ranger. But, but, but how glorious is it to think about not only people that God's raising up to plant churches and lead churches, but maybe even people that, that maybe they're not called to plant and lead churches necessarily. Maybe they don't feel like that's where God's got them in their life. But they say, you know what, but I can work my job over there. And I can be a, an evangelistic witness. I can be a part of the church over there. I can come alongside this team. Third thing, ask God this. God, should I, should I plan a short-term mission trip? God, should I plan a short-term mission trip? Now, I realize I say that, and in a lot of ways, short-term mission trips, uh, rightfully so in a lot of ways, have gotten a bad rap, right? Uh, in our culture, just a bunch of sightseeing and um, fun little trips for people that don't share the gospel even here. And that's what people typically think of. Okay? Not what I'm talking about. But, but I would love to see more. Let's get our, we got these resources. We've got uh, this openness in this country to go in different places as we, as we please. We want to go. There. And so taking these trips to help the long-term mission, short-term trips to help the long-term mission of Christ. Ask God that. Fourth question. Ask God how can I be more sacrificial in my pursuit of this mission? So it would look something like this. God, I want, this, I, want to, I want to be sacrificial in my pursuit of the mission of God. Lord, I'm okay if it hurts me a little bit. If it hurts me a little bit financially. If it hurts me a little bit in my time. I want it to be sacrificial in my time to pray and say, God, do this in your church. Send me out. Send us out. Let me send others out. God, listen. You see what I mean? Ask him how you can be more sacrificial in this particular area. Now, uh, will you do that? Get a head nod. Yeah, you'll do that for me? Will you ask these questions? You take these questions before God? Okay. Please do that as a way of homework. And this is, this is just a powerful thought. Think about this. Grace Community Church is, is about 167 uh, Christians that have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. <laughs> Hundred, 167 people indwelt by the Holy Spirit of the living God. Think about that. Going to God saying, God, how can I be more sacrificial in this? God, do you want me to go? God, how can I bring glory to your name among all the ethnos on the planet? How can I do that, God? That's a powerful thought. And let's ask God now to use that. We'll close there. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this beautiful story and this beautiful display of your sovereignty, your control. Lord, you speak to men whenever you want to. <laughs> God, you are just 
sovereign in all your ways. You do all that you please. Thank you, God, for this, letting us read this and get a glimpse into this moment in history where you saved Cornelius and those other Gentiles, where you opened the floodgates for the nations. Thank you, Lord. And God, I pray that you would help us as a people to walk away from here and bring these questions before you, Lord. God, meet with us in those secret places scattered all across this city and surrounding cities, God. As we move in our secret place and we ask you these things, God, would, would you fill our hearts with passion and burden for the things that burden you? Would you fill our hearts, God, with wisdom from above? And God, I pray that you would call brothers and sisters, Lord, to unreached people groups in this church. And I pray that you'd do it for many years to come. Do it for many years to come. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.